This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Friends, up here in the Great White North, we recently endured a major ice storm that knocked out electricity for hundreds of thousands across southern Ontario and uh, up in Thornhill, north of Toronto, the Serrett clan plus Yaya Vula uh, were without power or heat and heat, rather, for, for just under 40 hours. Uh, we were lucky, uh, because tens of thousands more were without heat or power right through Christmas, and some are still without power. Uh, we managed just fine, uh, despite being um, ill-prepared, I have to admit. Uh, the mighty Aphrodite boiled water for coffee on the barbecue outside, and uh, I gathered some frozen wood, and the streets were littered with uh, downed branches of considerable size. Uh, so we burned uh, some frozen logs, and uh, the boys played Monopoly by candlelight. As I say, we managed just fine. Our ancestors uh, could do it every single day of their lives, going without. Uh, uh, so I'm sure, you know, we were able to cope with just uh, a mild inconvenience. But uh, a valuable experience, I, I thought. And I must say, a Christmas uh, to remember. Hope your Christmas was uh, equally merry and blessed. Sorry I couldn't be with you, as I intended, but I had to keep the home fires burning, quite literally. Uh, I, I, uh, I think we'd be wise, however, to look at the power outage that we just endured as a dress rehearsal. Let us hope and pray we are all properly prepared for when the lights go out for a really, really long time. And unfortunately, I think that day is coming. Tonight, however, we have heat, we have electricity, we have the radio. And thanks for allowing me on yours. For people of a certain age, uh, the, uh, the power outage during Christmas reminded them of their youth, of Christmas's past. Uh, my mother, my mother-in-law, only knew Christmas by coal oil lanterns and wood stoves. My mother recalls traveling by horse and cutter to her grandparents to celebrate Christmas. If only it were possible to go back in time and revisit 
the Christmases of our youth. I believe one day it will be possible. Time travel, that is. As the great theoretical physicist Michio Kaku says, in Einstein's equation, time is a river. It speeds up, meanders, and slows down. The new wrinkle is that it can have whirlpools and fork into two rivers. So, if the river of time can be bent into a pretzel, create whirlpools, and fork into two rivers, then time travel cannot be ruled out. Until then, until the day we have time travel, there is a way to travel back in our minds to the past, even previous lives. It's called past life regression therapy. And over the years, I've conducted several live past life regressions on the air. And for our last show of 2013, I thought it'd be fun and interesting to do another one. And if you've never heard of past life regression therapy or never witnessed one, you're in for a treat. Whether or not you believe in reincarnation, and in all honesty, I have to say that I don't, but it's hard not to admit after witnessing one, a regression therapy, that is, a regression, that there is something genuine and truly quite remarkable going on during a past life regression. With that said, we have several guests in studio for the first hour. One is a registered hypnotherapist and past life regression therapist, and the other is our subject, a woman who has agreed to undergo a regression to see if she can discover who she may have been in a previous life. Now, off the air, before the show started, she was placed in a deep hypnotic trance. We had to do that off the air because there are actual rules in radio that prevent you from doing hypnosis live on the air. Otherwise, some of you driving tonight, including our good old Dr. Ginescu, who's heading up the uh, 400 to his home in Barrie, might find themselves in a hypnotic state behind the wheel, and we, do, we certainly don't want that to happen. So our subject tonight, Christine, who is a painter from the High Park neighborhood here in Toronto, is seated across from me, and as I say, in a deep hypnotic state, ready to undergo a past-life regression. Now, we also have in studio... Our hypnotherapist, Debbie Papadakis. She was destined to be a teacher, healer, lifelong student of the human mind. At a very young age, she carried a deep passion and curiosity about the nature, or, 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 the nature of the human mind and human personalities. She grew up in Greece, a country where superstition and misapprehension about hypnosis still exists today. There was a limited amount of books written in her native language on the topic to feed her curious mind. Luckily, she was delighted to find a vast collection of English hypnosis books when she moved to Canada at the age of 20. What started out as a career in psychotherapy exposed Debbie to the study of human dynamics, where she recognized an increased need in employing hypnotherapy and past-life exploration techniques to treat her clients. This led her to advance her practice by becoming a Reiki master, a past-life regression trainer-practitioner, neuro-linguistic programming uh, practitioner, doctor of holistic medicines, registered master hypnotherapy practitioner, and a licensed holistic practitioner. Wow. She's been featured in Oprah's O magazine, City TV, City News, Slice TV, and many more. Other hypnotists flock to Debbie Papadakis for her specialized trainings, 
at conferences all over North America to learn her proven modalities and innovative techniques. Debbie Papadakis is also uh, the owner of Hypno Healing here in Toronto. Debbie, great pleasure to have you back on The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Thank you, Richard. What an introduction. Wonderful. And hi to everybody all over the world, all the listeners. I am fine, Richard. How about you? I'm wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you. And it's great to have you, Thank as you. I say. So uh, you're uh, sitting next to our subject tonight, Christine. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what are we hoping to find out about Christine's previous lives? Well, Christine is, uh, is as you mentioned, uh, she's an artist and she does wonderful paintings and she sells them all over the world. And um, she's, uh, her question was, I would like to find out if there was something, if I was a painter in the past. And uh, so we can investigate that and find out if she was. And uh, we can bring some of her skills from the past so to improve her work even today. Because through past life regression, we can go back and um, re-experience our um, skills. And uh, we can bring them along back today through our work. I was sitting here watching you place Christine in, what do we call it? We call it a hypnotic trance? Hypnotic trans? state. A hypnotic or state. Or a trance state. And what is that exactly? What, I mean, our, our, what, what is going on with our brain waves uh, when, when you, we're placed under hypnotic, in a hypnotic I'm state? Not, I don't think anybody knows what's going on. And I know people talking about we go to the alpha state or um, different states. But in reality, nobody knows what's going on. But we are already have this state. It's, it's that state that is the conscious mind is... Gone. It doesn't go to sleep, but it just calms down, and we are uh, we have access to the subconscious mind, with where all information exists, all our memories, our um, imagination, our memories are from generations and generations from our past, whatever that is for. I don't know how many. I can't even say years. Um, all information exists there. So through this state, which is basically calming the conscious and allowing the subconscious to come to the surface, we can um, enter that state and then we can uh, work with it. So you're going to take her back to a previous life? To a previous life because I will ask her to go to a previous life. I haven't asked her yet. I just uh, ask her to 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 go inside of her, to find her own inner peace, her own even uh, relaxed state, which I took me about five minutes, and um, uh, which uh, she did very nicely. And if you see her eyes are flinking and and her body is just relaxed. And she does. She looks very relaxed, but she's totally aware of what's going on. She's totally aware of what's going on. And if I work another five minutes with her, if I really want to and use a different language, I can take her to a place where she's she's not going to even want to listen to us. But at this time, she is. Because there are different states. We can go to a much further state if we want to. But at that state, you don't do any work. We only do work for pain management, and that's the other state. Well, why don't we begin the process then of... Uh, uh, Talking to Christine, you can take, talk to her. Well, you, you want to ask a question, you can. I want you to begin taking her to um, this, okay. this previous so, life, and then if I have a question, I'll interject. Okay, wonderful. So just, Christine, I'm just going to ask you just to relax. Okay, take a deep breath. Allow yourself to all the way couple of deep breaths again and now I'm going to ask you to from I'm going to count from one to five at each count 
You drift yourself back all the way back to another time, another life, another situation, another body, another place where this uh, this artwork that you do, the, the, the work you have, the love you have for painting has started at some point. Your subconscious knows exactly where to take you. Just allow the information to come to you easily and fearlessly. And when you come from one to five, at five, you'll be there. One, going back in time, all the way back in time, two and three, you four. And five, you are there. Take a deep breath and start talking. Um, um, I'm a young girl. I'm a young girl. Where? I'm in the Netherlands. I'm on a farm. Mm-hmm. And my family is working hard on this farm. What are you guys growing? Potatoes. Potatoes, okay. Potatoes. It's a beautiful. Our home is beautiful, a hut. And there's a strange man with a easel. Okay, Christine. One minute. We're going to pull your chair a little closer because we need the mic to be closer. Okay. Just give us a. Thank you. It's okay. It's okay. You're okay. Thank you. Thank you. That's fine. We just had to move Christine a little closer to the mic. Thank you. Just take a deep breath and just describe. You're doing very well. So just to recap, she's she's growing up. She's a little girl in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I have I have I have clogs on my feet, wooden clogs. <laughs> they look funny. I'm drudging in the mud, um, and I'm noticing that there's a sort of a scraggly, raggly man with an easel. Mm-hmm. And how old are you? Twelve. Are you a boy or girl? Girl. Mm. Girl. And what's your name? They call me Helene. 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 All right. Listen, we're just heading into a break. Let's uh, just sort of leave her there in the Netherlands for the time being. We'll come back. Our uh, regression subject, Christine, an artist from Toronto, experiencing a past life. Live on the air, Debbie Papadakis from the Hypno Healing Institute here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't you dare go away. Yes. So, I know my mother and my father are in the field working. Is there anybody that any of these people, your mother, father, or anybody else, that you know them in this current life? I recognize my aunt... There's my there's so there's four adults, two men, two women. The mother and the father I don't, but the aunt looks to me like my sister. Oh. In this lifetime. Wow. If you're just joining us, uh, the conspiracy show, our uh, past life regression therapist Debbie Papadakis uh, is in studio from the Hypno Healing Institute here in Toronto. You may have read about her in Oprah Oprah's uh, O Magazine and our. Regression subject is an artist by the name of Christine who resides in High Park, Toronto, and uh, she's reliving a previous life. She's under a past life regression, and she's in the Netherlands. She's 12 years old. Her name is Helene, or Helene, and um, do we know what year we're in? What, what year are you, Helene? Uh, 1885. Thank you. And uh, hmm. there's a funny man 
painting our hut. Mm-hmm. He has a straw hat on his head. Do you know his name? I'm coming up to him now. And he's I'm watching him paint our house. And he paints like he's painting our house, but every piece of straw on the canvas looks alive. What are you deciding or feeling or deciding when you see this man create these incredible paintings? I'm mesmerized. Uh-huh. And what is your decision at that time? I want to play with colors. I want to play with colors. He puts... Uh, there's energy in the colors that he's putting on the palette. Mm-hmm. And then on the canvas, so alive. That's right. And and Christine have said earlier that every time people stay near her paintings, the people become calm. And yes, yes. She's a, as I said uh, earlier, she's an oil uh, painter. Yeah. And uh, she mentioned to, to, to me off the air that uh, <laughs> when people buy her paintings, they are very calm to buy them. Yeah. So the. She smiled. I, I just saw him sign the painting. <laughs> it's Van Gogh. Van Gogh. There you go. <laughs> uh-huh. Van Gogh. So she learned from the master. And the year? 1885. Yeah. What, what part of the Netherlands is, is she in? Can she tell us? What part of the Netherlands are you? It's a farm. It's a potato farm. Noi, Noi, Noyen, 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 Noyen. Noyen. Hmm. Is she oh. able to? I'm going to come from one to three. The name is going to come very clear to you. One, two, three. Just say Noyen. 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 And from now on until we finish, I'm going to be asking questions. Also, Richard is going to be asking questions. I would like you to respond to Richard also. Thank you. So you can ask any questions. Are you able to speak to to, to Van Gogh? I'm right beside him. He's he's very intensely concentrating on his colors. He doesn't look like he would be happy if I bother him. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm very excited watching him work. And this is your house that he's painting. Yeah. And where is this painting today? It's to- in the art gallery. Which one? Amsterdam. Amsterdam. Uh-huh. And what are the colors? Look at when house is shaking. How are the colors of this? Of this? Uh, many strokes. So many strokes. A yellow hatch. Yellow, yellow straw roof. Dirty hmm. white. Can, can you take hands. us, her hands, yes, they are shaking. Yeah. Can you take us to another period in her life? Um, the same life or another life? The same life. Okay. I am going to count from one to three. At three, I would like you to go to another time where you... Uh, that was a, a significant event for you that you have uh, 
with the knowledge that you're going to gain, you're going to improve your life today. One, two, and three. You are there. Just tell us where you are. I'm in a church. Uh huh. I'm in a church. There's a christening. A christening is happening. Who's christening? Who's christening? Who's being baptized? Who is being baptized? I think my aunt had a child. And what's the name of the baby? Hans. Hans. <laughs> Hans. And please tell us your last name. Migudi. Migudi, Migudi. Can you spell it for us? Migudi. Mig. M C G O O D Okay. Yes. I'm there's this there's a dis disturbance in the church. My f parents are not too happy. What is the disturbance disturbance about? Something to do with uh, their portraits were painted. By whom? By Van Gogh. Mm -hmm. And they're not pleased because they are peasants. They feel like they're being made fun of. Your parents were, were painted depicted as peasants. They are peasants. Because of the way he painted them. So so what do they do? They don't understand. They don't understand art. They don't understand the beauty in the art. Does she meet Van Gogh again? Do you meet Van Gogh again, Christine? We go as a family to Amsterdam. He gives me a paintbrush. But I'm older now. I'm like 19. Did you, did, have you painted any, have you done any paintings? Not yet. Okay. I'm busy helping on the farm. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to go to school and learn. Did you go to school and learn later on? No. Did you learn how to paint? Only secretly. Mm-hmm. Did you paint any? Did you create any paintings later on? I didn't have supplies. Mm. No. Just take deep breaths. Why did she have to paint secretly? Did her parents not approve? Was there any reason for you not uh, painting secretly? No supplies. No supplies. No supplies. Mm -hmm. 
I would like to know what the, what is again the decision you made at the time about paintings. It was a way to stay young, mm-hmm. to feel alive, to create a world in the colors. Mm-hmm. And you t- you took you took this uh, this want and need and desire and brought it to this current life, isn't it? it in my heart. I brought my heart. Can you take her to another period in her life? Does she have family? Does she have okay, a family of her you, own? Uh, you, in the same life or another life? The same life. The same life. Okay, Christine, just, just um, I'm going to count again from one to three. At three, you will go to a much later time, much later time in the same life, and you will be able to describe all things that happen in details. And perhaps there's some significant event that is worth looking at right now. One, two, three. Tell us what's going on. Well, I'm I'm a I'm a grandmother now. How many children do you have? Six. Six children. And how about uh, do you have a husband? My husband's passed away. Uh-huh. What year is it now? Nineteen twenty. Nineteen twenty. And what happened there? I'm uh I'm in my house. Can you describe your house? Yeah, it's uh Rocking chair, fireplace, mm-hmm. big burning stove, pipe. How about your address? Can you give us your address, please? You exactly know your address. One, two, three. Looks like 23... Valley Strauss... Valley Strauss. Mm-hmm. In what town? What town? Still Noyan. Noyan. Thank you. My yeah, my my parents were the best potato farmers in this town. Mm. What else is going on in your life? You're a grandmother. What else? I knit. Hmm. I'm knitting. I knit little booties. I keep myself busy. Wonderful. And this time, uh, should I take her to another life? or? Can you take her to the moment where she leaves this body? Okay. Um, and this time, thank you, Christian. You're doing well. I'm going to come from one to three. At three, you will be at the end of this life. At the um, event of the your death and the death experience, but you will not be able, you will not feel the feelings. You're just going to watch this event with um, with an adult comprehension, without any feelings, and you'll be able to watch your body from above. One going towards the death experience, two and three. Tell us what's going on. I'm in my bed. Mm-hmm. I had a heart attack. 
My children are around my bed. Where are you watching from? I'm above my bed, watching down on myself. Mm-hmm. I'm free, I'm lifting, I'm weightless. I'm observing. Mm-hmm. How old is she? How old are you? I'm in my 70s. I like this feeling of being weightless. I have no emotions. I'm just watching. That's right. And just go above that. Just continue. Go above higher and higher until... I see a light. Mm-hmm. Just follow the light. Going to the light. As I go up, I feel uh, like I'm being encased in this love. Feel that love Strong and memorize love. that love. Memorize that love into your heart, into your whole body. Uh, very like, I feel like I'm in a pink, pink light energy vibration circles. Does she leave behind any regret from this life? And now I would like you to look at the life that you just passed. Was there anything that you could have done better? Well, I did more, more what was better for me. Mm-hmm. It was a life of giving and doing and being and obeying. Um, not much exploration for what I wanted. Mm-hmm. For what I would have liked to have done. Mm-hmm. For from spiritual point of view, what what um, are the gifts that you received from that life? A hunger. Mm-hmm. Hunger for self-expression. Mm-hmm. For doing what my heart wants to mm-hmm. do, for what my heart sings, wants to sing, mm-hmm. to do. All right, we're going to head into a break. Uh, Debbie Papadakis, past life regression therapist from Hypno Healing Institute, our subject tonight. Uh, Christine, an artist from Toronto, will take a time out, come back. Maybe we can bring uh, Christine out of her deep hypnotic state and uh, we'll ask her a few questions and yes. find out what she saw, what she felt. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back. Uh, Debbie Papadakis, a Hypno Healing Institute is um, the name of her organization located here in Toronto, and she is a, a registered hypnotherapist, past life regression therapist. You may have read about her in Oprah Magazine, O, o Magazine, uh, and elsewhere. And uh, our subject tonight for our past life regression uh, is Christine, who I understand is now, she's now out of her hypnotic state debbie is that almost uh, out she's almost out do sort of take it totally out I'm if you'd like ca- i'm yeah. going to come from under 10 at 10 you're going to be back into this normal state feeling strong feeling powerful rejuvenated <clears throat> totally awake one coming up feeling lifting up yourself move your hands and feet wonderful two three four five six seven nine ten open your eyes feels better isn't it hello christine hi how are you feeling excited <laughs> do you do you have any recollection of what just happened? I have a uh, yes. I I remember excitement in my body. I can remember playing in mud with clogs on my feet. Yes, and being quite mesmerized by watching an artist paint 
Do you know who that artist was? Van Gogh. It was Van Gogh. Were you yeah. were you surprised to learn? Yes, very, very surprised. Quite excited. You mentioned that you were potato farmers. Your family were potato farmers. Yes. And that Van Gogh was painting your your parents and your family and your house. Yes, I I just have a recollection of being a very young girl, being quite taken by this funny looking man, putting all these colors on a canvas. Uh, that didn't look very much like what I was seeing. And you, you believe that you, because you are an artist, that you, you derived your inspiration to paint in this previous life from Van Gogh. You met him. Yeah, which is quite exciting. Do you, do you, do you, did he come into your house and paint at all? Do you know? I don't know. I, I'd have to be hypnotized, I think, again to, I want to show by. you a, I want to show you a famous painting. Okay. Uh, by Vincent van Gogh, I believe. This is it. It's called The Potato Eaters. Does that look at all familiar? The hats certainly do. For I remember the hats are the hats that were worn by my mother when she was in the field, in the oh. visions I had. Yes, and the wooden inside. And that little girl, there's you. There's a little girl in that painting. Could that be you? <laughs> it could very well be me. How does it feel I, looking at that painting? <laughs> Quite bizarre. And, uh, and this picture looks like a very dark, uh, very... Yeah, there wasn't that much. Is there any picture of the house? Because I remember that he was painting the house. And this was a painting that you said is hanging in the gallery in Amsterdam. I'll have to, right. look, at, uh, I'll have to look for that. Uh, but that was the first thing that came up, uh, was this... Uh, That's you. <laughs> this potato, it's called the Potato Eaters. And that could well be your family. And that could be you, the little girl with the braided hair. But but at one point, uh, she said potato, potato farming, potato farming. And then at one point, she said potato eaters. Yes. Very fast. I did? Yes. <laughs> I don't remember that. When you were... Uh, I remember when I was dying, though, I remember saying that the whole town felt that my my parents were the very famous potato farmers and I didn't have a concept as to why they were famous but it could very well be because of this have you been to Holland the Netherlands no never not yet not yet now you will yes but I have when I go to antique stores which I love going to I'm always mesmerized by uh, the those blue and white little um, windmills yes Yes, and I'm always, and I, I love uh, the Don Quixote and the windmill, and I've painted windmills, um, but I don't know why I have this connection to that. Well, now you do, apparently. I, 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 yes. How did, how did these images come to you? I'm always fascinated, and I always ask this, when someone undergoes a past life regression, do you, is it like a movie playing in your head? Uh, are, are there uh, images, sounds, smells? Tell me, walk me through the yes. What to, you to me, there was sort of almost a uh, sort of an emotional energy as to what I was feeling and thinking. So I would be looking out at my parents working in the field, and then knowing I should be out there working with them. But I was so drawn to this funny sort of man that was doing something different, um, and I think that uh, I feel like my surroundings were quite dull. But when I went and looked at the canvas, I. Uh, the feelings that I had in me was that that he made my house alive with his colors. So there was just this, you know, this little girl's mind 
the feeling of just being quite attracted to this that was so unique and different from what I knew around me. But it seemed real, did it? It very real. Not yeah. like a dream. Well, I felt like giggling and giddy, and when I when I realized I was wearing clogs, like I could feel the the happiness through my whole body, and I could feel the excitement of walking on in mud in these big shoes. What I can say about this, some people will have, will connect through feelings. Some people will connect through pictures. Some people will connect through through hearing. So we have the visuals, the kinesthetic, the auditory, the, so uh, with smells, with, uh, so different people will have experiences through different means. means. I would say for me it was emotional. Even when I think I went into a church and I I could feel that my parents were very upset. So I was emotionally, you know, all nervous because they were upset. Are you convinced that you've just re-experienced a past life? Yeah. It resonates with things in my life that that are meaningful to me. All so, right. We'll take another time out. We'll come back and we'll talk about the, the benefits of past life regression therapy. You don't have to necessarily believe in no. reincarnation no, you don't in order to, to benefit from this. We'll discuss when we come back. Debbie Papadakis from the Hypno Healing Institute. Our subject tonight, Christine. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Whenever we conduct a past life regression live on the air, I'm always uh, busy on the computer trying to find some you know, verification, a name, a place. Uh, we did discover uh, a, a painting. I'm not a... Uh, that knowledgeable about Vincent van Gogh. I certainly enjoy his work, but we did find a painting here called The Potato Eaters. <laughs> and uh, our uh, our past life regression subject tonight, Christine, was discussing or, or was in this hypnotic state dis- or reliving her past life as a potato farmer. And she described van Gogh being there and painting her family. <laughs> uh, and your parents, you said, didn't appreciate the depiction. They thought that they were quite upset with van Gogh. They thought right. he was making fun of them. Right. Right. It is an interesting uh, depiction. I mean, almost cartoonish, this, this picture, the potato eaters. Right. So maybe we can understand why your parents weren't that, uh, that, that happy with it. Uh, let's talk with uh, Debbie Papadakis now from the Hypno Healing Institute. What's the benefit of that? She, lived, she relived a, a past life. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is now a painter here in mm-hmm. Toronto. Mm-hmm. It appears that uh, she connected with Vincent van Gogh, and this is where she... She, well, the, she gained her passion for, mm-hmm. for, for painting. But what's the benefit of the that? The benefit of it? Actually, uh, I, I need to spend a few more minutes with Christian, which I will at future time. We don't have the time here. Yeah, but just generally. To, generally, she will go and pick up information from the paintings. She will pick up skills from Vanko and bring them into her work today, which I didn't have time to really work on that to, to do it. Or she would, if she had painted herself at that time, she was a great painter at that time, she can go back and pick up all the skills. But since she wasn't the painter, she was watching Vanko, we can go and copy him exactly what he was doing. She can pick up that information and tr- bring that information into her life today. So her paintings are going to improve dramatically by just going back there. And I need to do 20 minutes work on that with her to, to, to bring that back. What are the other benefits? of? Uh, let's say, for example, uh, as you know, I've laid I, my cards on the table. Yes. I don't I subscribe don't to reincarnation. That's right. It's not part of my faith system. However, okay. I recognize there's something very unique going on here. It's <laughs> genuine. I don't doubt that for a minute. I, I don't understand exactly what's going on. <laughs> 
Maybe, you know, it's possible maybe she's experiencing someone else's life. Who knows? Uh, someone else's past life. <clears throat> but my question to you is that if I don't believe in reincarnation, am I going to benefit from this? If I Yes, you can still benefit by going back and vis- uh, visiting whatever comes to you. Doesn't have to be reality, doesn't have to be whatever. Just by going back and seeing the events, usually we go and look for the root cause of an issue. Here we were looking for positive for paintings, you know, for yeah, she, why she became an artist. That's right. But we can go back and find out if somebody has illnesses. I mean, uh, Dr. Weiss, uh, Brian Weiss, he says in his books, 40% of our illnesses comes from past lives. 40% it, of our illnesses that come from a previous life. That's exactly what he says, and he's a psychiatrist, and he's the authority in past life regression. And uh, we can go back and bring gifts. We can go back. One of the area that, areas that I work a lot is with relationships. Uh, people who have um, love and hate relationships, they don't want to leave the partner yet. They they cannot stand them, or it doesn't yeah, have to can't be. Can't live with them. They can't live without them. That's right. Say. Right. That's right. Those people, if we take them back to the past, they have made some contract. They have made some contracts. They have agreements with each other. What do you mean they made some contracts? Well, I will never leave you because this life, um, I I left you. I left you and I didn't treat you properly and then you suffer somehow and then you come back and you say, oh my God, what would I have done? I will, from now on, I will take care of you forever. This is an unwritten contract. Unwritten contract. What you're saying is that they've had... They ex- this kind of thinking. The but minute, they were together in a previous life. That's right. And that, something this, happened. This would be in a past life. The contract will be, I will never leave you. I don't mean written contract. I mean verbal. Right. Uh, thinking with emotions. I will never leave you, and I will look after you forever. Well, that's that's enough to destroy your life because you come back and you are with that person again and again and again, and you can never what you said was never leave them and never stay with them. But ne- because they don't you, have, always... you you resent you're resenting now. You you want to be with that person. You don't want to be, but you have to be, and you're resenting the person because and you, then don't you, <laughs> you don't realize you don't realize in a previous life you made a contract to that's be with right. them always. Well, the minute we clear those contracts, the relationship is over, or the relationship becomes better. It depends. On and they the don't. Know, you don't always come back as husband and wife, though. No, no. It could be a, a mother and a son. Could it be uh, whatever? And that's the source of the conflict. Mm-hmm. If two people don't and get along. The minute you clear that conflict, and that takes five minutes, three minutes to clear the con- the conflict, all of a sudden the relationship is totally different. Now. Is, is it, it possible, let me ask you this, if it, let's say you have a couple and they're constantly quarreling, hmm? always at each other. Yes. Is it possible that in a previous life, I don't know, they were on opposing sides of an army, you know, let's say the, the, the American Civil War, one was on the Union side and one was on the Confederate side, and that they were... That's possible, but uh, that could be 5%, 95% would be they were together and they had some conflict between them. Right. It's, 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 we seem to be coming back with the same groups of people in order to resolve issues, to learn, to enhance our consciousness, to experience the end of it. We need to experience love, and we go through lessons to learn. So we can have all kinds of conflicts from before. Uh, I do see people who they used to, they have this conflict one against each other, and they come back in this life. But more more than the not, I see when people have a um, close relationships, 
and different promises. Let's say uh, someone comes to you and they they have uh, a, an incredible fear. Of, oh yes. Let's say commitment or something. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> if yes. you send them back to a previous life, a past life regression, mm-hmm. you can be- you can be- help them solve that problem mm-hmm. for sure. For sure. How does that work? Because that works. Well, you take them back and we have to revisit the event. And they see that in a previous uh, life, they had, they were probably close to somebody and this person left them. Or uh, they may abuse them or something wrong at that time. So by seeing this event and see that the suffering they had to go through, they then decide, make a decision that uh, I don't want to be near anybody because if I'm near somebody, I will be, I will suffer. Therefore, I don't want that. But furthermore, Richard, uh, many people have issues with money. Sure. And money issues Who to doesn't? Me. Who doesn't? <laughs> not enough of it. <laughs> not enough of it because that's the belief, not enough of it. And I mean, and that belief may have come from a past life where you had all kinds of problems and, or you, I mean, doesn't have to be past life, can be when you were a child in this current life, when you and your mother's wound and you, your parents were fighting about money and you trying to survive and you kept saying, but I'll be good, I'll be good, thinking that is my problem. So, and you thinking, if money creates this uh, turmoil in this relationship, I will never have money. Therefore, you never have money. <laughs> uh, I, have, I have worked with hundreds of people, thousands of people with money issues, with uh, relationship issues, with fears. People are uh, afraid of drowning or they don't go near water because in a past life they drown. And you know how many of us, I mean, if we talk hundreds of past lives or thousands of past lives, we all had something. When you take someone back, uh, let's mm-hmm. say they, they have a fear of water. Yeah. Uh, and you take them back to a past life, and let's say I don't know, you, you discover that they were uh, uh, a, a navy. They were in the the navy, mm-hmm. yeah, and they went down with a, a ship or something. That's right. Uh, I mean, that could be very traumatic for them to be experiencing that. That traumatic event, that trauma, stays within you until you go and clear it, and we can't go and clear it. But when you take them back to that event, mm-hmm. yeah. Isn't that, again, very traumatic for them? No, because you re-experience it, and now it's going to be easier. It's going to take a half a second. You just experience it for half a second. For example, I will resolve that by actually like any fear. Imagine yourself, you have um, the fear of, uh, of uh, dr- I'm going to drown, but then I'm going to have you re-experience uh, that you're alive again. So we go back and forth, back and forth to experience I'm alive. So therefore, even that drowning second, my minute or whatever the time is, it becomes less and less important because the I am alive again becomes stronger. That's one way and many other ways to do it. But um, you just have to experience for a second. So it's, but, but in normal way, you experience it every time something happens. So instead of experiencing... On a subconscious level. On a subconscious level, but affects your life today. People have fears they cannot move forward. They're stuck in life. They want to, to, become, to, to, to have a different life. They're stuck in every area in their life. And they don't know why. They don't know why. Is it all past life? No. But if it's not past life, it is in this, it is in this current life. As children, we learn from, from our environment, our families. I mean, the best uh, people in the world that they meant very well to help us, they implanted so much fear in us in order to keep us safe. And that fear help us, well, no, it's not helping us, it's destroying our life. Some people go through years and years and years of psychoanalysts, psychoanalysts mm-hmm. and they yes. never 
They never get anywhere. I'm thinking, okay. of, you know, people like Woody Allen who's been in psychoanalysts for like right. 50 years. Okay. And he's still messed up. Okay. Are you saying that someone could, can, can circumvent that whole process? In a few sessions, number of sessions. Usually I see people in five, six sessions and that's all my work. But uh, what's happening is there is – think of a three plates, okay, three plates. One is bigger than the other. The outside plate – is your conscious mind with all the logic, all the analysis, all the thinking. Think of the word thinking, okay? That's the outside, which is the conscious mind. The middle side, the middle one, is the subconscious where all the emotions exist. And I'm talking about feelings, emotions, uh, anger, sadness, hurt, pain, love, you name it, all of them, including the beliefs. I'm good enough, I'm not good enough, I can do this, I cannot do this, whatever. And then right. you get, and then in the middle of it, the, the, the total middle of it is the unconscious, which is the, uh, uh, the body, uh, the body response. It's called the bodily function something. Right. Anyway, it's the body response. In other words, if I, if I have, to, if I face something, or if I think of something, if I think of my mother, the associate feeling from the subconscious would take over. If I love my mother, let's say, so I have the thinking from the conscious, this feeling from the subconscious automatic. Uh, response and then my body will respond positively if I love my mother because the love feeling goes through my, my, my body but let's say I'm thinking of somebody who I don't like Okay? Right. The same idea goes there. I'm thinking from the conscious, the, 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 the negative feelings, anger, sadness, hurt, pain, whatever it is, comes from the subconscious and the unconscious, which is my body, will, respond, will put me down. In other words, or you lift yourself up or you dine every minute you're thinking of something. And that, and, I, and that that response travels from one lifetime to the next. That's right. And now talking about why it would take a long time and all that, in a regular therapy, uh, most people will use the analysis. I, in the hypnotherapy, we use the feelings. We change the feelings. And once you change the, the feelings. The involuntary bodily Thank you. As soon as we change the feelings, the response is different. Right. And, and, and we right. have different techniques and modal ways to, do, to change those feelings. If, if someone wants to uh, make an appointment with you at the Hypno Healing Institute, what do they do? What they do, call the, our office, 416-760-8996, or go on our website, www.hypno-healing.com. And callers, we have workshops that come in. But I also want to mention one thing. Myself and um, um, a, um, a scientist from the States, um, what is my information, please? Um, Dr. LJ, we're writing a book on uh, sleep because I specialize in sleep issues. All right. And we specialize. And we're writing a book on sleep and specifically for sleep for um, shift workers. And another five months, four or five months, the book is going to come out. I would like all of you please to let us know because it's going to be an incredible book with techniques how to resolve sleep issues and also with a website to have a, a tapes on or CDs or music or whatever it is, the, the, the induction. Uh, all right. Well, sleep, we'll look you know. forward to that. Yes, we can have that. And Gen also, I would like to say to people that in uh, January 4th, we have a World Hypnotism, Hypnotism Day and we have a workshop. Please call us at 416-760-8996 and come to our office to, have, to join in our workshop. Debbie Papadakis, the Hypno Healing Institute. Thank you so much. Christine, our uh, regression subject. Thank you. And uh, the website's still down, but it's 
Relaunch is imminent. RichardSerrett.com. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Uh, the, uh, the Mighty Aphrodite is in New York with a, uh, a friend who's uh, been visiting from Kalamata, Greece. So I've got the boys with me here in the, in, at the radio station. And uh, they've got their pajamas and their bears and a couple of Narnia movies and their Captain Underpants books and uh, blankets and pillows. So hopefully they're asleep by now. I've got them camped out in an adjoining studio with uh, explicit instructions not to touch any dials, knobs, or buttons. So if we go off the air suddenly, you'll know why. It has nothing to do with the ice storm and power outage that struck Southern Ontario over a week ago. We have a great hour of radio coming your way. John Rappaport of No More Fake News is standing by to explain how we can all exit the matrix, this strange programmed reality we find ourselves in. Uh, Then in the second half, Mickey Duff is the director of Project Censored. He'll join us to discuss some of the most censored stories of 2013. Uh, A host of stories which document how the New York Police Department operates outside the very laws it's charged with enforcing. In October 2011, for example, a former NYPD narcotics detective testified that he regularly saw police plant drugs on innocent people as a way to meet arrest quotas. That's just one of the uh, 25 stories uh, Project Censored has uh, listed as the most censored stories of 2013, and uh, we'll get to some of those a little bit later uh, in the hour. For those of you who are new to the program, I'm uh, certain as we head into 2014 and what is sure to be a a turbulent, challenging year, you'll come to rely more and more on this type of program for news and information. If you were shocked and surprised by revelations that the National Security Agency is spying on just about everyone, that your email, your cell phone, your internet surfing habits are being monitored, I've got news for you. This is just the beginning as we continue what I am calling the long, inexorable march towards totalitarianism. And all this happening under the nose of the mainstream news-gathering organizations, which are supposed to be safeguarding our freedoms and liberties, not participating in their destruction. Witness the recent takeover of the once venerable and respected Washington Post, the newspaper that broke the Watergate conspiracy, The new owner of the post is none other than Jeff Bezos, the founder and CEO of Amazon.com. So, you may ask, well, Bezos and Amazon Web Services have just been awarded a $600 million contract with the CIA to build a version of the online cloud that will run inside the Central Intelligence Agency. A conflict of interest? Jeez, do you think? If you think reporters at the Post now will be free to write investigative pieces on the CIA, then I've got a nice parcel of bottomland for you in Key West. And here now, to talk about that and much more, one of my favorites, John Rappaport has worked as a freelance investigative reporter for over 30 years. He's written articles on politics, health, media, culture, and art for LA Weekly, Spin Magazine, Stern, Village Voice, Nexus, CBS Health Watch, and other newspapers and magazines in the U.S. and Europe. He's lectured extensively all over the U.S. on the question, who runs the world and what can we do about it? For the last 10 years, John has operated largely away from the mainstream because, as he puts it, my research was not friendly to the conventional media. 
Over the last 30 years, John's independent research has encompassed such areas as deep politics, conspiracies, alternative health, the potential of the human imagination, mind control, the medical cartel, symbology, and solutions to the takeover of the planet by hidden elites. And you can read his weekly blog on his wildly, wildly popular website, nomorefakenews.com. Always a pleasure and a learning experience when John Rappaport joins us here on The Conspiracy Show. John, how are you, my friend? Very good, Richard. Great to be here, as always. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, this takeover at the Washington Post and why we should all be standing up and taking notice. Well, it's quite insane, really. And part of the insanity is that other major media outlets are not really picking up on the story and investigating it uh, significantly. As you summarized, Jeff Bezos, who is the founder and CEO of Amazon, has bought Washington Post for $250 million and uh, bargain price. And Amazon Web Services has just won this $600 million contract to service the CIA with a version of the cloud that will be running inside the CIA. So uh, we know, of course, that the Washington Post for many years has been extremely friendly to the CIA and that the CIA has vetted a number of stories before they permitted them to be printed and the CIA uses the Washington Post as a kind of mouthpiece on occasion. But this is uh, the cherry on the cake, because now anything that the Washington Post would say about the CIA is not only suspect, but to be discounted completely. And since I know a lot about the game of reporting, I can certainly guarantee that uh, journalists inside the Washington Post are not going to be writing stories critical of the CIA in any significant way. That's just not going to happen. So, Not if there's a $600 million contract uh, at stake. Yeah, right. So and, they're bent beyond recall. Now, isn't there some sort of ethical question at work here? Shouldn't Bezos be forthcoming then uh, and declaring some sort of a conflict of interest or at least – you know, coming out publicly and saying, yes, we do have this contract. Uh, uh, you know, I, I would think that there would be sort of a, you know, he would take out a, a, a two-page op-ed piece or something to assure his, his readers that this isn't going to impact the rep- reportage at the, at the Washington Post. But he's been silent on this question, has he not? Yeah, and that seems to be the strategy these days. People with enormous amounts of money prefer to just remain silent if they possibly can and hope that the whole thing just sort of fades away and people don't remember it. The Post itself should be making statements, you know, about a possible conflict of interest. They should be disclosing the fact that there is a $600 million contract that Bezos now has with the CIA, but of course they're not going to do that either because there's no way they can slip and slide around this as soon as they would make an announcement like that people would you know, just simply doubt anything they have to say. Why should we believe you when you say that there will be no conflict of interest and that you'll continue to report honestly on the CIA? I mean, that's just not going to happen. It would open a can of worms, and so 
they just hope that they can skate by it and people won't take notice. And so far, they've been successful. Uh, for years, I think we've all had sort of a, 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 a suspicion. Uh, in fact, it was a Washington Post reporter, uh, of course, one of the, uh, the principals uh, behind breaking the Watergate story, um, Carl Bernstein, who wrote a piece for, I believe it was Rolling Stone magazine back in the mid to late 70s, uh, talking about the infiltration of the CIA into the mainstream news gathering organizations. Uh, now we have that very paper that broke Watergate, essentially, uh, I don't know, I, I don't want to say being taken over by the CIA, uh, but certainly uh, will be heavily scrutinized by uh, the CIA. I just find that very ironic. Yeah, it is very ironic. And then we had a situation there with Ben Bradley, who had worked for the CIA in Europe, you know, when he was the managing editor for a very long time. And that's one reason that I have written about Watergate and don't believe the scenario that was laid out about how it all came to pass and how two rookie reporters were entrusted with the entire future and reputation of the paper to break a story about Deep Throat and Nixon and so on and so forth. So this all goes back a long way, no question about it. But now, you know, you have a target, which is Bezos. I mean, he's a public figure. He's right out there. Uh, There's no question that there's a conflict of interest at the very least because of that huge contract with the CIA. And it's just sort of sitting there like a rock. And, uh, you know, the paper is going to go on its merry way and pretend that there isn't a problem and and hope they can get away with it. One then, then how now has to stand back and question what other media organizations have made uh, side deals with the CIA or the FBI, not necessarily business deals, uh, but just some, may perhaps come to some uh, mutual uh, agreement, wink, wink, nod, nod, uh, about you know the sharing of certain information. Uh, and then the question would be, you know, what was the bargain? Well, we can see that with uh, the Edward Snowden affair, because the Washington Post is one of the few papers that, you know, had direct access to Snowden and his documents, the Washington Post, the Guardian, two major papers. And the stories that have come out about Snowden's revelations, you know, there are many, many meetings with lawyers and representatives of the NSA and government people that proceed breaking these stories. I mean, The Guardian has done it uh, with their version of these agencies in England, and so has The Washington Post and The New York Times. And this is just a general practice. I mean, these media outlets, whenever national security rears its ugly head, Uh, they make sure that they're not stepping on any toes. And so you have many conversations. And so I think we can assume uh, certainly that NSA has looked at a great deal of the material that uh, the Post has. And, you know, they've said, okay, well, you can 
you can write a story about this and that, but not about this because we have agents in the field or we have certain methods of surveillance which we don't want revealed. So there's no reason to suppose that we are even penetrating deep into the iceberg of NSA with what has been revealed about uh, Snowden's uh, material because all of these stories are carefully prepared and then vetted by the U.S. government before they're printed. So this is just an ongoing thing. Talk uh, about a side deal. That's, a, you know, that's front and center. Well, so much for a free press. All right. Uh, John Rappaport is with us. NoMoreFakeNews.com. We'll come back. We'll touch briefly on Duck Dynasty on trial and uh, then talk about uh, John's CD-ROM series, Exit the Matrix. We'll find out how we can get off this crazy Hindu wheel and uh, on to other things. Back with more of the Conspiracy conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Uh, Mickey Huff, the director of Project Censored, uh, just around the corner right now. John Rappaport from NoMoreFakeNews.com is with us. And uh, I wanted to talk about this never-ending Duck Dynasty dynasty, uh, scandal, for those of you who don't know about this. Uh, it is probably one of the most popular programs on TV at the moment on um, A and E, and the uh, the the patriarch of the uh, of the uh, Duck Dynasty is, uh, is Phil Robertson, uh, who was suspended from the show uh, earlier in the month after uh, making what were considered to be homophobic and all around offensive remarks during an interview to GQ magazine. Uh, then, of course, the governor of uh, Louisiana uh, chimed in, Bobby Jindal, and uh, even, I believe, the uh, lieutenant governor saying that these are uh, – Phil Robertson is a great citizen of Louisiana and that this was a uh, uh, you know, a, a, a shot against uh, – across the bow of uh, free speech and so forth. Uh, even Cracker Barrel removed their uh, Duck Dynasty products from their shelves in response to the so-called homophobic remarks. Uh, but they were hit with a deluge of response from Dynasty fans. They ended up writing an apology to those fans and putting those products back on the shelves. And, of course, the latest, A&E has decided to reinstate Phil Robertson on Duck Dynasty. And uh, I wanted to get your reaction to that uh, uh, because you wrote an interesting blog about this, uh, John. Yes, well... <laughs> It's a crazy story, no question about it. Um, I came at it from this angle, that the government, federal government of the United States, which has been pretty quiet about this whole thing, is really very interested in all of this, because under the present administration, political correctness has risen to you know new heights or sunk to new lows. And uh, the story there is that there is a cultural war taking place in America and a vast amount of propaganda that is aimed at trying to get the populace to speak correctly, not say certain things. You can say other things. In fact, you must say other things. And this all has to do with race. It has to do with gender. It has to do with all sorts of subjects, guns, and so on. And the attempt is to really institute 
a cultural thought police so that people not only don't do certain things, they don't say thir- certain things, and they don't even think about certain things because they're afraid that uh, under the terms of the surveillance state that you alluded to at the top of the show, uh, they could be in for a rough ride, and all sorts of peer pressure could be brought against them. And so what you're really looking at here is self-censorship. That's the end product of the culture war, where people just don't talk about certain things because they're afraid. They're afraid of the reaction. They're afraid even some people might think they're breaking a law. Uh, there is, uh, you know, this sort of cloudy idea in America, which is more clearly defined, unfortunately, in Canada, of hate speech. Am I guilty of hate speech if I say this or that or the other thing? And so this whole thing with Phil Robertson is a shot across the bow of that, regardless of the content of what he said. You know, it was a magazine interview, and he just uh, said, well, I believe in the Bible and God, and this is what the Bible says, and so I think that homosexuality is a sin. And it could have been left at that. But the network, of course, A&E, which originally put on the show Duck Dynasty because they thought it would be a giggle for the audience, these crazy guys that live in the swamp and, and all of that, all of a sudden, you know, it turned out to be their biggest moneymaker and uh, one of the most popular shows on cable with a gigantic audience. And so all of a sudden it became serious business. And so they were just caught between a rock and a hard place when Robertson made those statements. And so they felt obliged to go along with political correctness. They figured the blowback would be horrendous if they didn't do something. And so they censored him and took him off the air. But then, (laughs) little did they know what the extent of the outcry would be about that people threatening to boycott the network and so on and so forth. And so they reinstated him because they just made a business decision. And they also discovered, I think, that the the values being espoused by Phil Robertson in that piece, and maybe most Americans wouldn't uh, phrase it the way that he did, uh, but those values are in line with the majority of Americans. Well, certainly a great number of Americans who have been very silent about it until now. And so, of course, Robertson has become a sort of a folk hero. But in a wider sense, he's become a folk hero because he just happened to speak his mind and didn't care what happened. And it could have been on a variety of different subjects that were considered highly sensitive and and so forth and so on. And meanwhile, all of this is just on cable. It's not on the major networks. I mean, the major networks would never put on that show to begin with, but if they did and this sort of thing happened, they would be obliged never to put him back on the air, regardless of how many people objected, because they are in such collusion with the government and its uh, public and hidden agenda that they have to go along with it. I mean, they are part of that establishment. Cable is a little bit different. It's a little bit freer, so forth and so on. So A&E figured they could get away with reinstating him. So is this, is this a victory against political correctness? Well, I think it is. 
I think it really is because uh, the the people who try to shout down other people who say what is on their minds and what they believe have been forced to kind of retreat at least temporarily on this and lick their wounds and try to figure out what to do next because they're used to winning all the time. You know, that a comedian, you've had this in Canada many times and in America too, you know, uh, a comedian will stand up and say something in a show and then all of a sudden it becomes a big blow up and then the comedian issues a completely insincere apology and uh, falls on his sword and then the whole thing goes away maybe he's forced to have meetings with certain you know groups uh to assure them that he's not prejudiced etc cetera, et cetera. you know so these groups these pressure groups whether they're gay groups or whether they represent racial groups or whoever they are they're used to winning outright without even trying they just lift a finger when this happens they push a button and all the propaganda machine goes into high gear and then they get apologies which is all part of the deal of the culture wars this is the way it's supposed to happen and then the citizenry says yeah well okay so we apologize so you know i don't want to get caught in a situation like that where i say something that might offend somebody else so i'm just going to keep my eyes straight ahead and my mouth shut which is exactly what the government wants I mean, this is part and parcel of the surveillance state. It's just taking place in a different way, in a different venue. And when Robertson refused to uh, retract his statements, all of a sudden the whole thing just kind of sat there, you know, and was very uh, nervous-making for these pressure groups, and they eventually had to retreat, at least for the time being, especially when A&E reinstated Robertson. And so now that is a victory for free speech, no question about it. All right. Well, perhaps there's a, um, a future run at the White House or the Senate for, uh, for <laughs> Mr. Robertson. John Rappaport is with us from uh, No More Fake News. I want to spend a few moments talking about your, uh, your CD-ROM series, uh, Exit the Matrix. What's that all about, John? Well, we can get into it in more detail, but uh, it's basically a huge mega collection of uh, audio presentations that I have done. And uh, a lot of it is based on the work that I did with a brilliant hypnotherapist named Jack True in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, Because Jack, as he put it to me, stopped doing hypnosis when he realized that new patients walking through the door were already hypnotized. And so his That's a pretty profound went, statement. <laughs> yeah, it was quite startling to me when, uh, until we got into deeper conversations about it. So basically what he was saying was, at the core of consciousness of most people, there is hypnosis, serious hypnotic mind control operating all the time. And the point of his therapy after that was to wake up a person in that core, And he said, make no mistake about it, he said, I'm not talking about zombies wandering down the street. People, many people are quite active, they go about their lives, but underneath it all, there is this core place where they are indeed hypnotized into a certain kind of reality, which gives them 
the notion that they have severely limited potential, severely limited abilities. For example, that this whole area of the paranormal, for example, doesn't exist at all. It's a sham. There's nothing to support it when, in fact, people at large already have these abilities, but they've been put to sleep. And that's kind of where the whole exit from the matrix research began for me uh, back in the 1980s. So how do you, how do we, uh, I just have a few moments here, but how do we reverse that? How do we begin that process? Well, Jack and I, I conducted many interviews with Jack. Uh, He died in the 1990s um, along that very question. And what we both came to conclude was that you needed exercises and techniques that would expand the role of creative power in a person's life. And if a person was committed to doing such exercises, he would indeed begin to wake up at that level and realize that he had been completely bamboozled into a hypnotic view of reality and what's possible in reality. And upon waking up like that would lead a completely different kind of life. So my work since then, uh, in collaboration with Jack, has been to develop such exercises and techniques. But part of that process, and you've written extensively about this, part of that process of uh, uh, placing uh, is uh, in this hypnosis, this deep trance, uh, begins at a very young age uh, in the in the classroom, uh, administering antipsychotic drugs to children. Uh, I mean, in some cases, you've got. Uh, you know, decades and decades uh, of, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but abuse, if you will, to, uh-huh. you know, to work through before you can wake people up. I mean, that could Absolutely. be a lifelong process. Yes. It, for some people, it is a long process. For others who lead a reasonably healthy life, it doesn't have to be. But I think we're really talking about a level of conditioning that begins in the womb. I mean, it's not just after the baby is born, the impact of this reality in which we live is passed down from generation to generation. And there are memories of it, collective memories, that everyone has of a consensus about reality, about what reality is, what it isn't, what it can be, what it can't be, and what the limits are, the severe limits, and how we're supposed to live our lives within those limits. All of that is deeply embedded in consciousness, especially when you stop and realize that until fairly recently, many, many cultures across the world believed in personal reincarnation, and some still do. And this is yet another area that's been completely cut off from people. So they consider, well, this is, this is my go-around, this is my life, here it is, I live, I die, that's it. When that's simply not the standard, and for a long time, historically, was not the standard for the bulk of humanity, who believed that you come back many, many, many times, that you have memories of this, and that if you can access those memories, you then begin to look at your existence in a completely, 
completely different way. Uh, John, how can we get a hold of uh, Exit the Matrix? Well, if people go to my website at nomorefakenews.com, they'll see the graphic there, and they can read all about it, a complete description of the materials, and they can order it right there at the site. What else, what else are you working on these days? Actually, a new product, which doesn't have a name yet, uh, which is the implication implication, you might say, of exit from the matrix, taking it all one step further with new exercises and techniques and a whole new look at creative power. And hopefully that product will be ready to go in a month or so. So I've been working very hard on that with a lot of audio presentations and uh, I think maybe the beginning of February that'll be available to the public. As you look ahead to 2014, uh, are you uh, optimistic? Are you concerned? Uh, how would you uh, how would you characterize your, your feelings about the year ahead? I'm both. You know, uh, I can see some really gigantic storm clouds approaching in certain areas, but at the same time, I see that. This awakening process that has been accelerating since the Internet took hold is expanding, you know, by the minute, by the hour, by the day, all across the world. What I'm concerned about is that people have some uh, path along which they can move to not only learn more about the lies, the conspiracies, uh, the fabrications of reality, but also how to get out of it. And that's what really my work has been focusing on of late, and hence Exit from the Matrix and so forth. Because I think a lot of people come across a certain level of frustration, where they see a great deal of the truth, but then they don't know what to do about it, and they throw up their hands eventually and say, well, the powers that be are just too strong. But I remain very optimistic that that is not the case because the levels of awakening that are possible in the subconscious have to do with individual power. And that's what my friend and colleague Jack True was talking about and working with patients on at length to awaken that power so that people could not only experience it but use it in their lives. That was the whole point of his work and uh, since we collaborated on a great deal of it, I've been carrying that on uh, for a number of years now. And that's where a lot of my optimism lies. All right. Well, keep fighting. I feel like that's in- inherently possible for all of us. Keep fighting the good fight, John. Look forward to doing some uh, more great shows with you in 2014. All the best. Thank you, Richard. John Rappaport. No more fake news. The top censored stories of 2013 when The Conspiracy Show continues right after this. Here are some headlines you probably didn't read in the um, mainstream news media in uh, 2013. U.S. joins forces with al-Qaeda in Syria. NYPD caught planting drugs on innocent citizens. NATO war crimes in Libya. A small network of corporations runs the global economy. These are just a a few of the uh, 25 of the most censored stories of 2013. And the list was compiled by Project Censored. Project Censored 
educates students and the public about the importance of a truly free press for democratic self-government. They expose and oppose news censorship and promote independent investigative journalism, media literacy, and critical thinking. As they say, an informed public is crucial to democracy in at least two basic ways. First, without access to relevant news and opinion, people cannot fully participate in government. Second, without media literacy, people cannot evaluate for themselves the quality or significance of the news they receive. Censorship undermines democracy. Project Censored's work, including their annual book, weekly radio broadcasts, campus affiliate program, and additional community events, highlights the important links among a free press, media literacy, and democratic self-government. Here to tell us more about uh, some of the top censored stories of 2013, including the ones I just mentioned, is Mickey Huff, the director of Project Censored. He's on the board of directors for the Media Freedom Foundation. He's currently professor of social science and history at Diablo Valley College in the San Francisco Bay Area, where he is co-chair of the history department. Mickey is also co-host with former Project Censored director Dr. Peter Phillips of the Project Censored show. The program airs weekly as part of the morning mix on Pacifica's KPFA Free Speech Radio in Berkeley, California, and rebroadcasts on several stations, including NoLiesRadio.org and the Progressive Radio Network out of New York City. He's also on the steering committee of Banned Books Week, working with members of the American Library Association, the American Booksellers Foundation for Free Expression, and the National Coalition Against Censorship, among others, as Project Censored is a co-sponsor of the events this year. Mickey Huff, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Richard, thanks so much for having me on. I'm doing very well, and uh, again, I appreciate the opportunity to come come and talk about some of these very important issues. So, again, thank you very much. Give us some insights on how the the list of the most censored stories are are compiled. Well, Project Censored was founded in 1976 uh, through Sonoma State University by Carl Jensen, continued 20 years later by a sociologist, Peter Phillips. And it's, it's a research project, but it's also based on education and public education and the importance of media literacy and critical thinking, as you just mentioned in your introduction. And the way we research these stories is that uh, the stories can be nominated through our website, projectcensored.org. Uh, stories are nominated uh, and researched uh, by people all across the U.S. Um, we all survey professors and students. In, we all survey independent and alternative non-corporate media for what appear to be you know, very relevant and important stories. We then have students in various classes, for example, this last year, uh, we had 18 participating colleges and universities, uh, over a couple of hundred students, 50-plus uh, professors, and over 10, uh, 13, actually, community members and so forth participating and vetting and researching these stories. Um, but we use LexisNexis and ProQuest and various uh, university library-type databases to find out where these kinds of stories are being covered. Students then, and again, all of this information about how we do our research and all of our methodology is on our website. Um, so people are invited to go and look there. And, of course, your listeners are invited to nominate stories for us to research as well. Uh, but um, we then take the stories from the students to a professor or an expert in the field that the story deals with, and they factually vet it, and they, they look it over to see if it seems to be accurate. 
it's then re-researched, and then it's, it becomes something that's called a validated independent news story. And what we've done at Project Censored for the last 37 years is laud the importance and significance of independent, non-corporate media. And, of course, your listeners are likely familiar with the term mainstream media. We don't believe that what is referred to as mainstream media represents mainstream viewpoints at all. Corporate media, particularly in the United States, five corporations dominate roughly 90% of the news media landscape and entertainment landscape. And um, that's very problematic. And we try to call attention to that type of control and top-down managed news propaganda. And we try to elevate uh, the significance of a truly free press and independent reporting through this research project. We publish a book every year through Seven Stories Press out of New York City. We publish our reports and our stories year-round on our website, projectcensor.org. And again, we really focus on community. Uh, we focus on public education. And, and we focus really on a free press, and, and that's our big issue, is even though people may, may want to, to, to claim Project Censored is pushing uh, an agenda about a particular subject that we cover, the reality is, is that the only agenda that we're actually pursuing is one of a free press, and one that operates in the interest of the public not merely private and plutocratic interests. Mickey Huff is with us, the director of Project Censored. We'll take a time out, come back, and we'll delve into some of the top censored stories of 2013, including number 19 on the list, New York police plant drugs on innocent people to meet arrest quotas. Be careful, mighty Aphrodite, who is visiting New York at this very moment. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. Mickey Huff is with us, the director of Project Censored. We don't have a lot of time, and I don't want to spend an inordinate amount of time on uh, any one story, but I want to uh, get to as many of the uh, ones that I find particularly disturbing uh, anyway as we can. Uh, and it, this is number 19 on the list of the 25 most censored stories of 2013, Mickey. New York police plant drugs on innocent people to meet arrest quotas. Now, if I'm not correct, this also made the list last year, so this is obviously an ongoing story. Yes, it is. And um, some of these stories that you're reading are from our 2013 book. Our 2014 book actually came out in October with a whole new list, and your listeners can go online to see what those are. But you're correct in saying that this stop-and-frisk story has been going on for quite some time. It continues to this day. And, in fact, it is a program that is being replicated across the U.S., including uh, in places like Oakland, California, where they're trying to implement similar type policies. And um, you know, what this story really came out, uh, it was originally in the Gothamist, uh, which was which was published um, in, in out of New York. Um, it's been on Alternet. Uh, it's been in a few other places um, in the independent media. And not only is it a story about New York City wasting uh, $75 million a year on marijuana arrests, that's one element, um, we have a whistleblower story here, and that's one of the big focal points of our new book on whistleblowers and the war on journalism. Uh, an NYPD narcotic detective claims and, and states that uh, because of the pressure internally for police to have arrests and quotas to continue to get money, they regularly plant drugs on people on the street. And in the stop and frisk program, a vast majority of people that are stopped uh, in violation, clearly, of their Fourth Amendment rights, are minorities. Um, and uh, so it's a combination of racial profiling, 
uh, combination of, 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 again, corrupt police officers. And by the way, that's not to suggest that all police officers are involved in this kind of activity, but it does show that whistleblowers are coming out and saying that some police are violating the law, looking to cause trouble. Look, stop and frisk is a problem already in terms of people's rights to privacy, rights to free movement, and so on. And when you look statistically at the 70 to 80 percent of people that are stopped are being young men of color, uh, you know, this is a, a, a <laughs> this is exemplary of a, of a police state structure. And we've seen the paramilitarization of the United States over the last decade since 9-11. We see it in many guises. In our 2013 book, um, which came out in the fall of 2012, we talk about that. In fact, that was the top story, the signs of the emerging police state, the National Defense Authorization Act. Obama just re-signed that uh, this year. Uh, and again, things like stop and frisk are very problematic. And there have been some profi- high-profile movements against it, People like Cornell West and Carl Dix and others have traveled the United States trying to call attention to this, and there is some resistance to it. However, uh, it doesn't get much attention, and it's gotten some attention in New York City, but um, it doesn't seem to get the type of attention that it ought to get concerning how problematic the program really is, including the illegal elements of it that were brought out by the NYPD whistleblower. Once you verify these stories and fact-check them and double-fact-check them and triple-fact-check them, do you then go back to some of the mainstream, let's say the New York Times, and say, hey, why didn't you guys or why aren't you guys on top of this story? As a matter of fact, Richard, we do sometimes, and, you know, in, in, in their... Um in their defense, occasionally these uh, so-called mainstream or corporate media entities do cover these. And in New York, they did cover Stop and Frisk because it was a local story. But some of these outlets do cover it. And in our books every year, we have a chapter called Deja Vu, which goes back and looks at previously underreported or censored stories to find out what happened to these stories. Were they picked up? Were they covered? And when they are covered and when they are picked up, we, we do laud that. We, what we've seen, Andy Lee Roth, uh, who is our associate director and co-editor with me at Project Censored, uh, what we've discovered in the last couple of years, and it's a pattern that we've traced back through Project Censored's history, is that there seems to be an 18 to 24-month lag between independent news media and corporate news media when they will actually pick up a particular story. That's not to say that they always will pick up a particular story, unfortunately. Um, but there seems to be a real lag with that, and some of that might have to do with various influences, advertising, ownership, uh, a reliance on official sources, and so forth. But occasionally, uh, you know, the major news media do pick up these important stories, and if they would just simply pick them up more often, I'm sure we'd all be better off for it. Uh, I want to talk to you uh, about a story here that I think many of uh, listeners to this program have long, long suspected, and we've talked about it at length, and that is the U.S. joining forces with al-Qaeda in Syria. Well, we've long covered stories about the U.S. involvement in Libya, uh, U.S. uh, uh, joining al-Qaeda forces now in Syria, Saudi Arabia supporting certain groups in al-Qaeda groups in Syria, certainly more revelations, or should I say uh, repeated revelations, in quotes, about Saudi support, Saudi state support for the 9-11 attacks. Um, This, you know, anybody, I mean, I'm an historian, I cover foreign issues, U.S. foreign policy. I mean, U.S. support for al-Qaeda goes, of course, as you know, all the way back to Osama bin Laden and the Mujahideen in Afghanistan in 1979 with the erection of al-Qaeda. And, you know, Clinton, the 
Clinton administration was simultaneously working with al-Qaeda groups in the Yugoslav war while uh, attempting to oust Osama bin Laden from various places around the globe, from Sudan to uh, Pakistan. Um, it's a complicated story, uh, perhaps for people that, again, aren't familiar with the history of U.S. covert operations and Central Intelligence Agency activities working in concert with Mossad and MI5 and 6 and so forth. Uh, but it's, again, a very real one, and, and we do see this. And it's interesting, uh, you know, the story that we did on al-Qaeda in Syria going back to 2011, we're now coming up on 2014, and um, we're seeing more stories come out. So if we were to do a deja vu on this kind of story, one of the things we'd be pointing out is that, um, you know, more and more, even Seymour Hersh now has come out talking about the use of chemical weapons and how these chemical weapons being used in Syria may likely not be from the Assad regime. That should not be mistaken as a pro-Assad remark. It simply is saying that there are external forces that would like to wreak havoc in various Middle Eastern states for ulterior motives. And the U.S. corporate media tends to report in line with the military-industrial complex, the Pentagon, the White House, etc. Um, they often take their marching orders via Operation Mockingbird through the Central Intelligence Agency and NSA. And uh, we've learned more about that this year, but we think people should be just more aware of how these stories come about, and they're often a lot more complicated than just uh, black and white or good guy, bad guy, and so forth. And we think that the people uh, in the U.S. are intelligent enough to understand some of these nuances, but they're often not given the opportunity to understand them because the facts are so often buried. Well, granted, geopolitics is very nuanced, but the excuse that the that is often trotted out, uh, that uh, sometimes you have to make a deal with the devil and the enemy of my enemy is my friend, mm-hmm. I don't think washes post-9-11 if, for example, one uh, believes uh, the official line that al-Qaeda was responsible for the 9-11 attacks. You can't go to the American public and say, yes, we're in bed with al-Qaeda uh, because of some future goal in this complex you know, chess game that is the Mideast. <laughs> Uh, and then, uh, on the other hand, and say, yes, but they did, you know, uh, kill 3,000 uh, people on September 11th, 2001. No, it's very, it's very problematic for U.S. officials to do that, which is why it's easier if the stories are simply suppressed. I think what's more unfortunate, perhaps, Richard, is that um, in, in some, some circles, particularly left circles where there is a pretense towards, um, quote-unquote, truthful reporting or... Uh, reporting truth to power, so to speak, um, uh, that there are an amazing number of people there that are otherwise very suspicious of U.S. government power and so forth that have towed the anti-Assad line, missing the very nuances of al-Qaeda, missing uh, the U.S., Israel, and Saudi Arabia's interests in this. And on the surface, they may look very confusing, but once peeking underneath, um, you know, there, there's definitely a ge- an agenda afoot, and people have the right to know about it. All right. Mickey, Duff, uh, Mickey Huff rather, is with us, the uh, director of Project Censored, the website projectcensored.org. Now, here's another one, sort of the suspicions confirmed file. And, and, and on this program and ones like it, we often talk about, you know, the existence of some very powerful elite cabal that is uh, sort of, uh, you know, in holding the uh, the strings. And here we have... 
uh, a University of Zurich study, which uh, made, made the list, small network of corporations do indeed run the global economy. Can you expound on that a little? Yeah, this was a study that was done that looked at over 40,000 transnational corporations, and a University of Zurich study showed that 147 companies formed what they called a super entity that controlled almost half of the global economy's total wealth. Uh, this was reported uh, various places, including the Daily Mail, Public Library of Science. You'll see other stories about this on places like Global Research and so on, and the Michelle Chosodowski site out of Ottawa uh, for those in Canada. Uh, however, uh, we've also covered it here at Project Censored. Peter Phillips, our former director, uh, he's done a chapter in the 2014 book and 2013 book on exposing the 1%, the ruling class, plutocracy, really in line with some of the work C. Wright Mills did in The Power Elite. But going beyond that work and naming names and showing the network, I mean, I, again, it, it's not to use the word conspiracy in the negative CIA sense that it's been used since the 60s to cast doubt uh, on researching the powerful. It's to say quite literally that there are actual conspiracies and factual conspiracies where there are a, a very small group of people, you know, hundreds of people that would fit, you know, in, a, in an auditorium at, at your local community center or college or wherever that do make an, a, a, a lot of decisions about what's going to happen in the world, what happens with capital, what happens with labor, and so forth. Uh, and this study, of course, at Zurich really, you know, helped sh show that further Again, I would urge readers and uh, listeners to go and look at the two chapters Peter Phillips has done with us on exposing the 1% and naming, literally, the top 35 of the transnational corporate class, the capitalist class, who sits on their boards of directors, where they have gone to colleges, what are their social networks. Uh, you know, it's not rocket science. Uh, even in the United States and in political science realms, which is academically a fairly conservative field, you know, years ago, it was basically agreed upon that about seven or 8,000 people in the United States control what's called public policy. I'd argue the number is much smaller at this point. Certainly the people in Zurich are suggesting the same. But again, these are very real kind of conspiracies. These aren't dark room uh, types of activities. These are Cayman Island activities. And these are things that are happening with people's uh, taxpayer money. These corporations get massive taxpayer subsidies, and they often are involved in violating international law. And I think people really should get wise to it. Occupy Wall Street tried to call some attention to that. I think we should continue in that vein and shine the light in the dark places to see what's really going on in our world. And once a year, they, uh, they gather in five-star hotels at the Bilderberg meetings with uh, uh, senators, uh, heads of state, uh, American politicians in violation of the Logan Act. And in fact, uh, Richard, they, they hang out right up here in the San Francisco Bay Area at the Bohemian Grove, uh, and Peter Phillips uh, did his dissertation on the Bohemian Grove as, as a place where, where these people meet and they draft their plans and they, they make arrangements to do the things they do, and they do them out of the public eye, and they, uh, these, these types of things often then end up seriously impacting what happens in the public. You know, one of our top stories in our last book was about how 35 to 40 percent of all of our money goes to pay interest to banks. And this is, again, this is not accidental. 
You know, these are things that are orchestrated. They're things that go on. It's all the more reason we need to pay attention to public banking campaigns and all the more reason we need to really try to find out what's going on in the world around us. Mickey Huff, Director of Project Censored. Very quickly, how do we get a hold of the 2014 uh, book? And, uh, the... It's available through our website, projectcensored.org. Seven Stories Press in New York puts it out. You can also get a hold of our brand-new documentary there, Project Censored the Movie, Ending the Rain of Junk Food News. And we're on Pacifica Radio Weekly, um, Project Censored show. So uh, hopefully your listeners might tune in, share share some of uh, that information, and please feel free to contact us through our website at projectcensored.org. We love to hear from people. We love to hear new story ideas, and we certainly like to hear constructive criticism. So, Richard, thanks so much for what you're doing, and thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to come on your great program. Mickey Huff, my pleasure. Thank you. Happy New Year. You too. Project Censored, Mickey Huff. Uh, my thanks to Tim Spreen. Thanks for a great 2013. Look forward to uh, working with you next year. Uh, back next week with a brand new program, including the man with X-ray eyes, Douglas James Cottrell. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.